Today's episode of The Real Story on the Socialist Program was pre-recorded on Wednesday, February 23rd at 3 p.m. After decades of endless expansion by NATO towards Russia, the stage has been set for a possible major war in Europe. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we'll be talking with Eugene Perrier. Eugene is the host of The Freedom Side on Breakthrough News and the daily podcast, The Punch-Out. Eugene Perrier, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Eugene, we have been trying to keep up on the crisis as it's been unfolding. Of course, that's always a little bit dangerous. It's always dangerous to make predictions, especially about the future. But we've been keeping up and trying to assess where the danger of war comes from. Obviously, we are at the brink of a possible large-scale war. Uh, The Russian government has recognized two breakaway independent republics, mainly of Russian-speaking people in the eastern part of Ukraine. The United States is declaring that's an invasion of Ukraine, although there's some trepidation inside the Biden White House. Is it invasion or is it something else? Nonetheless, we can see that the United States and NATO allies are poised for a larger confrontation with Russia. For the last couple of months, you and I, Eugene, have been talking about the fact that Russia has drawn red lines. I mean, Putin made it very clear in his end of the year press conference that Russia would not allow Ukraine to be merged into NATO, that Russia would not allow Ukraine to be a staging ground for NATO advanced weapons, including nuclear weapons right on Russia's border. Russia has been demanding real negotiations. And at each and every point, the United States, Anthony Blinken, the other U.S. officials have said that Russia's demands for a security guarantee are a non-starter, meaning no negotiations. Perhaps they were like trying to play chicken with Russia, a country with 1.4 million members of its military, 5,000 nuclear weapons. If they were playing chicken, if they were trying to call Russia's bluff, that's a very dangerous game. But here we have a big shift, a big change, because Putin has announced after eight years of not recognizing the independent republics in the Donbass, in the eastern Russian-speaking part of Ukraine, as independent people's republic, Putin changed his mind this week. Anyway, let's get started. Let's talk about sort of two elements of what's happened in the past week. One is uh, the fact that Putin indeed did acknowledge or recognize these two uh, republics as legitimate new states, and also his historic explanation of it, uh, which goes through a long and detailed condemnation of Lenin and the Bolsheviks and the, and the Leninist policy on the national question inside of the former Soviet Union. But let's get started first where what we've been talking about for the last few weeks, the refusal, according to Putin, of the U.S. and NATO countries he calls our partners, maybe ironically now, to give him any security guarantee. I mean, in a way, when we're thinking about what's precipitated this crisis right now, it seems to me that's it. 
I think you're 100% correct in that, Brian. I mean, I think it's important to recognize here that despite the rhetoric of the Biden administration that, you know, they want to find a diplomatic route, they're essentially saying that Russia has no diplomatic demands by which they are bound to respect. They are completely rubbishing in every possible way, even the idea of quote unquote security concerns by Russia. Now, of course, this is in many ways a shift for the West, which for 30 or so years has paid lip service to the Russian security concerns as it steadily pushed NATO eastward and eastward. But they used to always say, oh, no, 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 it's not about you. It's not about Russia. We're not aiming at Russia, despite the fact that every term where they enlarged, the conversation around it was aimed at Russia. But nevertheless, they were trying to present a fig leaf. But now they are. there is no fig leaf. The emperor has no clothes. And we can see very clearly that the United States policy in terms of diplomacy is not really diplomacy. It's a demand that Russia acquiesce to what what the United States would like to see in terms of what Europe should be, which is essentially a trench against Russia, that NATO and that the EU more generally is a bulwark against Russia, that there is, in fact, a binary choice for the peoples of Europe, whether or not they will be with the EU and the United States, the so-called Euro-Atlantic Alliance, or with Russia. There's actually no conversation at all about what it would take or what it could take to have a sort of peaceful dispensation in Europe, which, of course, goes against what many, many people in Europe and, in fact, many people in Ukraine, I mean, in the middle of last year where this crisis was going on, at least in Ukraine, in terms of the saber ratting by Zelensky and the maneuvers by Russia, you had roughly 46 percent of people in Ukraine say they wanted to be equidistant between the two blocks. They didn't want to get involved And some percentage of that are people who wanted to be closer to Russia. And we have seen how Ukraine has been pulled apart by a civil war due to the events in 2014. So I think we have seen and we can see in Germany, we can see in France, we can see in Italy, we can see all across Scandinavia, we can see in the United Kingdom. We can see many, many voices in in some of these countries, voices of some substance that would like to see a very different form of security, collective security, the so-called indivisible Europe, which is a phrase that has come back in to currency here. But what we've seen is that the United States is refusing to address that. Now, they are willing to address some small issues. They say, well, you know, we are willing to talk about what it would take to do a, you know, a joint inspection regime where you come inspect our missiles in Poland and Romania and other places and make sure you feel that they're just defensive and not offensive. They say they're willing to negotiate around the issue of deconfliction protocols. So basically, if two ships run into one another from the U.S. and Russia, they can call up the line and prevent it from spiraling into a war. So they're willing to try to lessen the impact of what they are actually pushing forward, which is that NATO should be right on the doorstep of Russia. And I think we have to say that that is a warlike measure because Article 5 of NATO says that if anything happens, if you're attacked, all the other countries, uh, three of whom I believe are nuclear powers, will come to your aid, which means that any border incident between any of these countries or incident in the air or incident in the sea could then be turned into a Russian invasion. It could be turned into an attempt to trigger Article 5, which means in and of itself, it sort of forces the Russians to be relatively subservient, not to have any major forces anywhere close to the forces of these countries to avoid getting embroiled in a nuclear conflict with the United States, the United Kingdom, or France. And so obviously that's extremely warlike. So the United States is willing to say, well, you know, we'll come up with a few, you know, different phone calls for who can call who to try to prevent it from turning into all-out nuclear war. But at the end of the day, we want Russia, we want you, Russia, to feel the pressure of all-out nuclear annihilation. So U.S. diplomacy is basically accept the 
fact that we will do whatever we want in Europe. We will direct it as negatively as we want towards Russia. We will support governments in Central Europe that will be 100% bellicose towards Russia, including the Baltics. We will station missiles. We will station troops all around you. And of course, Turkey is a NATO member, so you're surrounding them on multiple sides. And if you don't like that, too bad, too sad, we'll just sanction you. And if you want to avoid it, then you have to agree to what we have to say. So it's not diplomacy. It's a demand, really, that Russia acquiesce to a U.S. vision of Europe, which is not a vision of a peaceful and prosperous Europe united from Ireland to the Urals. It's a vision of Europe as a trench, a trench against Russia in the contest, the war that the United States is waging both passively and actively against anyone in the world who challenges U.S. unipolar hegemony. Yeah, Excellent points, Eugene. I want to get to, you know, what Putin is thinking and what Russia is thinking. What's their tactic? Why did they do this? Why did they finally, after eight years, recognize the independent republics, people's republics in Luhansk and Donetsk, in the Donbass, in the eastern part of Ukraine? I want to get to that. But before we do, there's some more ground to cover, which I think is, is important. Going back to Putin's speech, he says, and this goes right to what you're saying, Eugene. He says, and this was the remarkable speech where he's saying, this is why our position has shifted. This is why we're not going to recognize these independent republics. He says, our proposals contained three key points. The first is to prevent further NATO expansion. The second is the refusal of the alliance, meaning NATO, to deploy strike weapon systems on Russian borders. And three, Finally, that the return of the bloc's military potential in infrastructure in Europe to the state of 1997 when the Russia-NATO Founding Act was signed. So the United States and Russia signed this Founding Act. United States and, well, NATO and Russia, U.S. leads NATO, signed this agreement in 1997. So Putin is saying, look, go back to that agreement. Go back to where we were 25 years ago, and we can settle this. He goes on and says, it was precisely these fundamental proposals of ours that have been ignored. And the question really boils down to this, Eugene, and I think it's perplexing to a lot of people. Why? Why were they ignored? If the United States under Bill Clinton, after the Soviet Union had been collapsed, after the Soviet Union and the socialist camp was dissolved, after the Cold War was formally over, and they've signed an agreement with Russia in 1997, what would be so hard to go back to that agreement? Meaning, why has the United States and NATO really chosen to go down this road? You know, I think that's an important question, and it's worth noting about that 97 agreement that, you know, of course, the United States and all of NATO agreed to, that they said they wouldn't place new permanent military forces in the countries in Eastern Europe or Central Europe where they were not already, which, of course, was massively violated. But, you know, I think it speaks to, you know, what we saw at the end of the Cold War in the United States when the United States was trying to define its doctrine for a, you know, post-Soviet world. And, you know, this has sort of in many ways been come to be known as the so-called Wolfowitz doctrine because it was first drafted by Paul Wolfowitz. But we've seen this recreated time and time again in the national defense strategies up until now, the most recent one in 2018. And if you want to go look at it, it's on the internet. Same basic principle that for the United States, the most important thing is to maintain unipolar hegemony over the world, to be the leader of the rules-based international order where the U.S. makes the rules. 
And currently, they're saying, well, Russia is a revisionist power, i.e. they refuse to follow our rules. And if you want to live in the world and you don't want to follow the U.S. rules, you become an enemy, you become a competitor. And as the national defense strategy lays out, they will invest even more money. They're looking to invest even more money to counter you from a military perspective and develop what they call a so-called more lethal force. So the reality is, is as laid out in the Wolfowitz Doctrine, Western Europe is one of the key geostrategic regions on Earth. Of course, it is the second center for global imperialism. It's the second center for world finance, although I guess, you know, also with Japan. It's one of the most industrial, uh, advanced intelligence, uh, computer IT, all of that. I mean, it's really sort of the second center of the so-called developed, so-called first world in general. And so for Western Europe to potentially move outside of the U.S. sphere of influence, allows the possibility of an erosion of U.S. unipolar hegemony. Now, of course, it's natural that those countries would work more with Russia. They already work quite a bit with Russia. I mean, there's a lot of economic trade that goes between them, and there was during the Soviet era as well, because, of course— a huge chunk of Russia is part of Europe. Russia is in a central location vis-a-vis the trade that goes from Asia to Europe, the so-called former Silk Road routes. That's why some people call the Belt and Road, the new Silk Road type of initiative in terms of how global trade flows operate and work and have worked for thousands of years. And of course, there are close relationships between you know the people of Russia and the peoples of Europe in many different ways. And that involves both conflict and uh, communion, if you will. But nevertheless, there are a lot of very relevant reasons why these forces would come together. But the power of Russia and the power of Europe combined means that they could say, maybe we want to do something different than the way the United States wants to do it. So it's explicitly listed in the Wolfowitz Doctrine. It's something I've always noted about it because everyone talks about, oh, the Middle East is so strategic. The South China Sea is so strategic. But it always shocked me how in that doctrine, and they explicitly mention Western Europe as one of the most geostrategic areas. And so the maintenance of that alliance, we see it in the most recent 2018 national defense strategy that stresses the role and the importance of U.S. alliances in the abstract and the role of U.S. alliances in the particular when it comes to NATO, where they list interoperability, that's the ability of the multiple different militaries to work together under one command as one of the most critical factors in maintaining U.S. control over the rules-based international order where the U.S. makes the rules. And so ultimately, they couldn't include Russia, because to include Russia would mean that they would have to be acting on a form of partnership inside of Europe. And in fact, we know during the Clinton administration, they developed the so-called partnership for peace. And behind closed doors with themselves, they were figuring out how to deceive Russia that this partnership for peace was somehow an alternative to NATO enlargement, that they were going to include Russia in security conversations about Europe going forward, while secretly they were planning to do nothing like that at all. And of course, the Russians became very upset about that when that became very clear. But the point being about all of this is that the reason the United States, the reason NATO has an exorbly push towards the East, has been totally unwilling to really recognize any concerns that Russia may have. Even though the U.S. demands everyone recognize their concerns everywhere at all the time, threat of war and annihilation, that Russia has nothing that anyone is bound to consider, at least the West, from the point of view of security, is because the entire idea of partnership between the United States and Russia means the erosion of the idea of a rules-based international order where the U.S. makes the rules and controls what everyone else does. And so obviously there's no reason why there can't be a diplomatic solution here or in the past. There's no reason why there can't be you know, demilitarization across the European continent. Certainly there have been many talks that have spoken towards this over the years, and all the principals at various points have said that yes, they would like to see this. But the reality is, is the lingering reality of U.S. imperialism 
imperialism has prevented that from happening because they want, and many countries in Europe and forces in Europe want this too. They're allied with the United States imperialism, especially in Central and Eastern Europe. They want to see Europe as a trench against Russia so that Russia is not allowed to play any role of partnership in Europe or in the world more broadly, and certainly not to strengthen and expand its own economic, social, and cultural realities on the backs of cooperation between Europe and Russia to a greater degree. Let's talk about what Putin is trying to accomplish with this announcement this week. I mean, obviously, it's a big shift for Russia. We need to acknowledge that. Russia, since 2014, since the coup and since the the civil war broke out between the Ukrainian central government, which at the time of 2014, it was initially created by a Nazi-led coup d'etat. It wasn't, and it's not a purely Nazi regime or anything like that. And in many ways, the Nazi forces, the Azov Brigade, the right sector, they were like the muscle for the Western-backed, the U.S.-backed coup d'etat in 2014. They overthrew the Yanukovych government, a government that wasn't pro-Russia, which is also, you know, talked about in the media as if Yanukovych was like a stooge of the Kremlin. Yanukovych was trying to balance between East and West. The EU issued an ultimatum, take it or leave it. Yanukovych said no to that particular agreement. And that led to protests in Maidan, in the central square of Kiev. And then there was the coup a few months later. So Putin you know, from that time on, obviously has been protesting against the new government's orientation, the new Ukrainian government's orientation towards NATO. But the people in Ukraine, especially in the East, they were initially organized because they were afraid of the Russophobe orientation of the new government and afraid of the Azov Brigade, afraid of the right sector. Putin in his speech talks about the massacre, the burning alive of trade unionists in Odessa, back in 2014. That's why this independent republics were proclaimed. And obviously, they wanted to separate at that time from Ukraine. They declared themselves independent people's republics. Now, during the last eight years, and during that civil war period, Russia has taken the position, let's find a peaceful outcome in this civil war in Ukraine. And it's at first, it looked like Zelensky having taken the place of Porochenko, was also looking for a possible accommodation. So there was the Minsk I agreement and the Minsk II agreements. It looked like there was a possibility of peace, and that was the road that Russia was following. Now with this announcement, I don't know, maybe it's not the absolute end of the Minsk agreements. Maybe it's not. Maybe there's still room for negotiations. But it appears to me that it's basically ended because Putin has said, we now finally, eight years later, recognized these independent republics as independent entities no longer part of Ukraine. Now, in one way, Eugene, that solves a problem for Putin because a lot of people in Russia who identify with the Russian, ethnically Russian-speaking part of Eastern Ukraine, they've probably pressured Putin to do something to support their Russian brethren who are the victims of right-wing attacks and who are in the, in fact, being shelled by the Ukrainian military, which is armed by the United States. So Putin solves a problem by announcing his recognition of these republics because he can say to the people in Russia, look, I'm doing it. I'm defending our Russian people in Eastern Ukraine. But he doesn't solve the geostrategic or military question because if anything, or at least not so far, if anything, it seems that Russia may be more isolated 
and the United States may accelerate even on a faster pace, the militarization of Europe against Russia. Anyway, what's your take on why this happened and why it happened now and what Putin's thinking is? Well, I'm very glad you raised the issue of of Russians as well, because I think one of the biggest defects as it concerns the issue of Western foreign, uh, Western media coverage, excuse me, um, but also how it's presented by the Western foreign policy establishment is it's Putin, 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 Putin all day as if average everyday Russians have the same view as CNN about what's actually going on in Ukraine, in Russia and in the United States and so on and so forth. But the reality is, is I think the point you made about Ukraine is very well taken and even Beyond what anyone thinks about Ukraine or Ukrainians or ethnic Russians in any other country in Russia, it's also a deeply held belief amongst people all across the political spectrum that the NATO enlargement, the NATO enlargement over the past 20 or 30 years has in fact been threatening, does in fact have shades of previous wars, most notably World War II, something that is deeply lodged in the memory of many peoples in the former Soviet Union, including in Russia. And we have seen over time that this has been a difficult issue for politicians in Russia to actually be weak on. I mean, certainly when you look at the communications between Boris Yeltsin, then Russian president, and Bill Clinton, you sense that quite clearly in the mid-1990s. And certainly you can see the Yeltsin officials were clamoring with the Clinton administration not to do anything to enlarge NATO before the 1996 elections, which you know ultimately were basically stolen in favor of Yeltsin, but which you know many of the anti-Soviet new Russian elites were fearful they would lose power because of their shambolic, just destructive stewardship, if you can even call it that, of the country. And certainly you can also see Thomas Pickering, who is the U.S. ambassador in Moscow, writing back to the Clinton administration, State Department, saying that basically this was the universal belief of all people in Russia or something close to it in terms of political terms, that the NATO going forward is very, very dangerous. And I think that whatever people in America want to think about this, whether you hate Putin, whether you think he's an aggressor, whatever you want to say, the reality is, is that people in Russia do not view it the same way by and large. And in fact, the vast majority of people view it as very, very dangerous, potentially portending war. They've seen the hit list of countries that have fallen to NATO as of late, Afghanistan, Libya, and so on and so forth, and Iraq, if we're talking about the United States, and they think someone has to do something. It is extremely unfair that we are being treated this way, that the Russia should not have to be in this kind of situation, forced into this sort of security reality. We shouldn't be sidelined inside of Europe because we have our own you know, wills and desires and terms of how the country should be governed. And I think that context is very important to understand what Putin did here, because I think you're you're right. Obviously, from a geopolitical perspective, it's more or less escalated everything against him. And in fact, you see the U.S. imperialist and those in the foreign policy establishment in the West say, well, see, we tried to tell you guys the whole time. People were trying to say that maybe Putin was, was logical, but he's really an illogical tyrant who is thirsting for the lands of the great Russia and the memories of Ivan the Great and, you know, Catherine the Great and Peter the Great and all of the the czars over the years. And this just proves everything we were saying about Putin is correct. We're going to send even more weapons. We're going to have the Nord Stream 2 be paused. We're going to be talking about even more sanctions. We can talk about the sanctions, which I think in and of themselves show a lot of what the West thinks. And it's not exactly what Anyway, we can get to the sanctions. The point being is all of these negative things are are now happening, basically, in terms of the drive towards Russia. But I think from the point of view of Putin and from the point of view of, quite frankly, any Russian leader, you're in a situation where after essentially 20 or 30 years of all Russian leaders totally acquiescing to the West, not really pushing back in any significant way, shape or form. I mean, let's remember that 
you know, Putin soft pedaled the 2003 Iraq war, didn't put up that much uh, resistance there at all, on a number of different fronts, you know, has been generally willing to not push back aggressively against the U.S. gallivanting around the world and overthrowing nations through regime change wars and also allowing NATO to get right up to the doorstep. Now you're in a situation where not only is NATO right up on the doorstep, but in the midst of a crisis that I think most people around the world do not want to actually see take place. I mean, don't just forget about the possibility of people dying in Europe. There's the possibility of nuclear war, of course, for the whole world. There's the possibility even of a low-level war disrupting the two largest wheat producers in the world, which means a massive grain crisis, particularly in Africa. So a world that most people don't want to see, where everyone's right up against it, where you'd think that would be the moment that you would just give a little, especially because as recent as last summer, President Biden said, Ukraine is not going to join NATO. Zelensky, you remember, had come to the United States. He was really pushing it. He kind of said that they had allowed them to join NATO, which meant that Biden had to come back and say, no, no, Ukraine's not in NATO. So basically the stated policy, I don't know of one expert on any side of this that actually thinks the United States or Europe or anyone else involved with NATO is somehow thinking that Ukraine is going to come in at least not any time in the next 50 or so years, as it were. But even despite all that, You have a West that is refusing to negotiate under any circumstances, that is refusing to acknowledge any of Russia's, you know, quote unquote, red lines, that is essentially saying all of the things that are being raised as security guarantees are fake and imperialistic. And you have all these different realities. So for a Russian leader to then take a step back, I think would have been something that perhaps in the Kremlin they felt they could not do because they everything's pushed right up to the brink and it's a question of who's really going to blink. And I think many Russians feel like they've blinked so many times and given up so much that now that NATO and nuclear weapons are right on their doorstep, that maybe they shouldn't give any more and we have this situation. Now, of course, we can go into why Putin says he did it and his various explanations for it and things like that, which are relevant. But I think the only way to really examine this truly is that the Russian leadership, the elites in Russia are up against the wall. They destroyed the Soviet Union Union. They looted Russia. They destroyed people's life expectancy. They allowed oligarchs to take control of everyone and stagnate the living standards of people. They've barely kept together the good parts of the Soviet system, like healthcare, like science, like technology, and so on and so forth. And then they have also allowed the Western countries to play on the fears of Russian people of multiple wars with millions and millions and millions of people dead and push the danger of war right to their doorstep, essentially while doing nothing. And I think that it's difficult in that environment to look at Russia taking a step back at this stage in the crisis. So even though I think in a lot of ways it's not logical and it doesn't make a lot of sense, I think quite frankly, this is exactly what the NATO expansion is designed to create, to have the ability to create a number of different crises, to keep things very high, and to create a situation whereby either A, Russia will take humiliating steps back, or B, the power of militarism in Europe and the idea of Europe as an anti-Russian trench will grow in power. So that that's my own belief, is that really you've got the Russian elites up against a wall trying to show their own people that after 30 years of capitulation, they're going to stand up for the interests that are widely held amongst Russians. But of course, I don't know no, I'm not there. And there's always many factors when it comes to foreign policy and international relations. No, those are important thoughts, though. And I think that when you look at Putin's speech, he even still calls the U.S. and NATO our partners. I mean, it's very polite language compared to how you know Biden calls Putin a killer and the, the way the inflamed, colorful, demonizing rhetoric 
employed by the U.S. politicians of both parties and by the president and by the media. Russia is very, you know, tame in comparison. Now, and there's also something, Eugene, that I think is really important that you got it. Russia is not the Soviet Union. Russia is much, much weaker. I mean, the Soviet Union was 15 republics. Ukraine and, and Russia were one. They were part of the Soviet Union. So were the Baltic countries. So were the Caucasus, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, of course, the South Central Asian republics. I mean, it was about 100 million more people. The Soviet Union was obviously the second greatest power in the world at that time, the second largest economy in the world. And Russia, after the loss of the Soviet Union, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union or the collapse of the Soviet Union, which, by the way, Putin is blaming nationalists as if they were nationalists in Ukraine or some other place, but it was the nationalist, the anti-communist nationalist named Boris Yeltsin, who literally dissolved, illegally dissolved the Soviet Union in December 1991. They're weaker, though. My point is that I'm agreeing with you that Russia is not the Soviet Union. It's weaker. And then there's been sort of an evolution or a devolution of U.S. policy, which I think has also confused in some ways Russian diplomacy up until now. Because remember when Obama came in and Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State and relations had started to deteriorate after the Russian conflict in Georgia in 2007. And Obama clearly wanted to start over. He wanted to press a reset button. As a matter of fact, Hillary Clinton took a great big red reset button and met with Lavrov, the foreign minister, and said, let's press the reset button. Let's get things back on track. And that was just, you know, seven years after George W. Bush had said about Putin that he looked into his eyes and he could see his soul and he saw a good man. I mean, these are signals sent by powerful Western capitalist countries that maybe Russia could be brought into Western good graces. And as a matter of fact, under Putin, even though Putin was helping in some ways to tame the absolute undiluted rule of the oligarchs, in other words, to discipline the oligarchs, and in some ways to get Russia back on its feet, the United States was not 100% hostile to Putin. And of course, as we could see from his recent speech this week, Putin is not only not a communist, he's an anti-communist. I mean, his speech was very virulently against Lenin and against the Bolsheviks, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. But I think the Russians have felt weaker, and sometimes the U.S. you know, extended an olive branch. They said, let's press the reset button. But the decisive turning point if we look at this sort of track record of the past two decades, was what happened in Ukraine with the coup d'etat February 22nd, 2014. That is, in fact, the turning point because Putin and Russia, I think, were preoccupied with the Sochi Olympics. They didn't see the Maidan protests coming, or they certainly didn't see a coup d'etat supported by the U.S. and the EU toppling a neutral government in Kiev and replacing it with a far-right pro-NATO government. They didn't see that coming. And when it did happen, Putin then did start to put his foot down. He, he said, we're going to take back Crimea, which had been part of Russia 
until Khrushchev transferred it administratively in 1954 to Ukraine when the two countries were one country, so it wasn't that important, and where Russia had the Black Sea naval base, its biggest naval base, then Putin said, okay, we're going to take Crimea back, and he did it vis-a-vis a referendum because most of the people in Crimea would if they had a chance to vote, and they did, and they did vote, to re-affix Crimea with Russia. That's the turning point, Eugene. That is when everything goes downhill. And from then on, there's no olive branch at all, just hostility. No, I think that's a very prescient point. I mean, you know, you have the United States, you have the European Union backing this coup that takes place in Ukraine. And and more so than backing a coup, of course, that's nothing new for the U.S. or the EU, but one that explicitly establishes not just an anti-Russian government, but really a, a in this sort of contemporary sense, but an anti-Russian government in terms of sort of a revisionist history sense. I mean, I think you're right to say, obviously, it's not a government of Nazis, and sometimes that can be you know, misconstrued. But I think the very fact that a number of Nazis and sort of Nazi sympathizers have been allowed into the mainstream of the politics of Ukraine and also into the military and other aspects of the state speak to the fact that a huge bulk of people, even those who, you know, are not Nazis, but certainly their view of Ukrainian history is a very anti-Russian one. And they're willing to embrace all the nationalist forces that worked with the Nazis, the UPA, Stepan Bandera, other people like that, and say, well, these people were actually not bad, even though they work with the Nazis and the Einstatz group and then helped to exterminate a huge number of Jews and others. But they were really just these misunderstood nationalists. We shouldn't even call them Nazis, which is also part of the confusion about the issue of Nazis in Ukraine is you've got people who are hiding Nazi sympathizers behind nationalist colors, which is totally absurd and totally fake and deeply destructive and highly anti-Semitic. But putting that aside briefly, you can see from the point of view of Russia, I mean, how else could they possibly view that? except in the most negative way, that not only had they backed this coup, but they'd backed this coup that put into power the people who basically were saying that you, Russia, are the worst people on the planet Earth, that you have always been the worst people on the planet Earth, that the Soviet Union was the same thing as Russia, and that Russians controlled the Soviet Union and deeply oppressed the nationalists to such a degree they were right to ally with the Nazis. I mean, these are extreme views being expressed all throughout the mainstream of Ukrainian politics, put in totally outside any sort of democratic constitutional order, and not only that, they're willing to give them even more weapons to, you know, back their absurd claims that, you know, there's some imminent Russian threat to march into Ukraine, which even despite what we've just seen, I think is not actually the case. And that's why Zelensky said, I'm not expecting a full wide scale invasion because things like that are have never really been on the cards vis-a-vis Russian-Ukrainian relations, despite whatever the rocky realities may be. So I do think that was the trigger. And I think it's an understandable trigger because in the context of NATO moving closer and closer and closer to the borders of Russia, coming into the Baltics and so on and so forth, the installation of missiles that have happened since that time. But even at that moment, given this broader context in the past 15 years of broken promises around NATO enlargement, it has to at least raise your eyebrow if you're the Russian leadership that like, okay, what are their real intentions here at the end? of the day, if they're willing to not only back a coup, but install a government that essentially will forestall any possibility of diplomacy, any real possibility of discussions, which, you know, by the way, is something Zelensky took advantage of when he ran for president, saying that he was not that person who was going to stand in the way of all possibility of peace negotiations, discussion or whatever, and was striking a much more peace-like, a much more democratic tone, unlike what, you know, we had seen from other Ukrainian leaders. But I do think that's ultimately why it became such a trigger, because you had a situation where they had to, I think, at least question what was going on 
vis-a-vis Western strategy towards their country when they are sort of, you know, having the Western powers support this government that is so clearly anti-Russia, that seems so open to being used as a a launching pad for anti-Russian initiatives of all types, that is essentially basing its entire historical political rationale for existing and political presentation around freedom from Russian tyranny. Well, obviously, if that's the case, it's going to change Russia's mentality about what's going on. Certainly, I think it would cause them to strengthen their desire to defend against that. And again, given the broader context of what I just said, of the historical narrative of these individuals in the Ukraine and the historic reality for Russians that is widely held across the population, that they are fearful and worry about World War II, World War I, I mean, you know, Napoleon, all these Western powers who have openly hated Russia, said Russia's a big danger, said Russia's a competitor, and then ultimately invaded the country through the Western marches, which includes Belarus and Ukraine. Well, here you are. you got a country that says Russia's an enemy, Russia's a competitor, Russia's dangerous, allying with a country along the march route into the country that other people have taken to kill tens of billions of people, and they are saying that most of those wars were basically justified for those people to invade Russia. I mean, I'm sure you could come up with some other rationale for why Russia should not be concerned about that. And I'm sure there are many people being paid a lot of money in Washington, D.C. to come up with those rationales. But when you look at the actual history, to me, it makes a lot of sense that what happened in 2014 was the real reset in relations that ultimately changed Russia's mentality, I think, for good, really, in terms of what they viewed the U.S. goals were in Europe more broadly and certainly towards Russia. Let's talk about the other part of Putin's speech. He gave um, sort of a emotional, psychological, historical description of the justification for acknowledging these two independent republics as independent entities, the People's Republic of Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic. Now, he said that the problem was the way Ukraine was created. He even suggests, really, he didn't come out and say it, but almost. He really suggests that Ukraine should not be a country, that it should not be a republic. And he blames Vladimir Lenin and the Bolshevik Party for its policies on the national question and the entering into the Constitution, the right, the Soviet Constitution, the Constitution of 1924 the right of the different republics of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, their right to secede, their right to be self-determining, the right to leave the Union. And Putin says it's unrealistic, the territory was too big, he said it was unnatural. He also sort of suggests that Ukraine is a fake country because until then, until 1924, the Soviet Constitution And really, by then, Lenin is dead. He dies in early part of 1924. But it was his orientation on the national question within old Russian empire that is consecrated in the new constitution. And that's the point that Putin says is the ultimate weakness of the former Soviet Union. That's why it dissolved, because republics could actually leave. That he's basically suggesting that the former territories of the Russian empire should have continued to be managed as a central unitary Russian-led state, despite the fact that there are many, many, many ethnicities and nationalities, and of course, many languages that are spoken in what was the former Russian empire. 
which stretched all the way, you know, from Poland to the Pacific. And basically his argument goes like this, because Ukraine was allowed to be an independent republic and because the constitution gave the different republics the right to be self-determining, to secede, that that was the sort of soft underbelly of the Soviet Union, the ultimate bacillus, as he put it, that led to its dissolution. Now, first of all, that's untrue. If anything, if you look at the history of the Soviet Union from 1922, when the treaty is signed and then it becomes sort of ratified in the 1924 constitution, all the way up to the 1980s, the peoples of the Soviet Union lived in peace. They shared an integrated economy. There was public ownership of the means of production. If Azerbaijan on the Caspian was producing oil and Ukraine on the West was producing wheat, they were able to exchange those products, not on the basis of capitalist property relations where a certain set of capitalists, be they Azerbaijan or Ukrainian, were looking for the best profit possible, they were producing things to meet human need. And it was an integrated economy. And it was also, for the most part, a country that lived in peace. The breakup of the Soviet Union or the last years of the Soviet Union, when it became, as Putin said, almost a foregone conclusion, that's when nationalist sentiments are nurtured by elites in the different parts of the Soviet Union, in the different republics, as the, you know, the scent of profit making and private property begins to take over the country in the last years of Gorbachev. And if you also think about it, what is self-determination? Self-determination means for nations what divorce means for couples. It means you have the right to separate. It means you have the right to divorce. It doesn't mean if you advocate for self-determination, you're advocating for divorce. But in order to have equality, you have to have the right to separate. If one part of the relationship is in the relationship against their will, if they don't have the right to leave, don't have the right to secede, don't have the right to divorce, and one side is stronger, more powerful than the other, in this case, Russia and people in Ukraine, then it's an unequal relationship. And Lenin's argument was the only way for the workers of the world or the workers of the Soviet Union to unite in other words, to have real unity, was also to have the right to divorce, the right to secede. And again, if you look at the history, it's only when the capitalist counter-revolutionaries like Boris Yeltsin take over Russia and take over the Soviet Union that the Soviet system collapses. It's not the byproduct of self-determination. It's really the byproduct of the capitalist takeover of the economy and political entity formerly known as the Soviet Union. That's a very important point on a number of different fronts. And, and I think we just have to say that, you know, Putin's arguments are spurious. They're not really based in fact. And ultimately, they're rooted in, quite frankly, what were some of the worst tendencies in the old Soviet Union that did not take seriously the points that Lenin and the Bolsheviks put forward, which is that great Russian chauvinism is wrong and bad. And that to have unity, you have to be able to unite on the basis of shared prosperity and recognizing common differences. And the fact that the sort of modern space of the Soviet Union was constructed by the Tsarist Empire, which itself emerged in the collapse of other Eurasian empires of the, the Middle Ages, including the Golden Horde and the Great Khanate and all these other you know, entities, comes together. And it speaks to the point that you know almost all the borders that exist on Earth today 
are essentially fake. I mean, they're, they're not fake in the sense that they don't mean anything, but they're geopolitically determined. And some of that is history. And in the reality of that history, the Bolsheviks recognize as much as anyone that a tiny elite of Russians had subjugated a huge number of peoples all around a giant geographical historical space, melded them into essentially sort of one economic unit, but that it wasn't that easy to sort through all these differences in terms of boundaries and borders. And you had to essentially create the best you could, a situation where people's languages could be recognized, where affirmative action policies that could be pushed forward. And ultimately, what would happen is that you would have borders that are drawn that are a little, you know, they're not ethnically homogeneous, but they're set up in such a way that you can at least have some sort of national area where peoples who have been historically marginalized are able to move towards that shared prosperity and also be able to organize themselves in such a way that they aren't subject to domination and where they feel their own collective power as a part of the broader association. I mean, you know, in what is now Ukraine, there were people in the Soviet Union formed who were ethnic Germans, ethnic Poles, ethnic Russians, Ukrainians as well. And they were all sort of brought into this general peace as part of this broader concept of shared prosperity, recognizing the diversity of amongst them and trying to create as many, you know, essentially compact units as you could to allow people to be able to feel their own power, live in their own communities inside of this broader understanding. It doesn't mean that you can't be a part of multinational, multi-ethnic places and cities like Kiev is, like Moscow was, like St. Petersburg, like Astana and different places like that, but that ultimately you were going to have a system that actually pushed back against hundreds of years of national oppression of these people who are also even worse than that, most of them serfs peasants, workers who are in the worst types of conditions by the elites who owned the factories and the fields and the estates that were tied to the czarist elite, that they were going to create a reality that pushed back simultaneously on both of those fronts, that says to the nationally oppressed peoples, yes, you rightly were oppressed, and now we are going to free you to the extent that we can in a language, sort of cultural level, and we're also going to form a powerful association so that we can use our shared human and material resources to build up our lives and to go from being, you know, places that are are known for being deprivation capitals and, you know, just massive warrants for poverty and inequality to places that are developed with arts, literature, culture, in your own language, medicine, education, all these different pieces. And this is, of course, the record of the Soviet Union. And I raise all that to say that in 2017, the Gallup company asked people in a number of former Soviet republics, did they think the dissolution of the Soviet Union did more benefit or more harm to their country? And you'll find in Armenia, 66% of people said more harm. In Kyrgyzstan, 61% of people said more harm. In Ukraine, 56% of people said more harm. Then comes Russia, 55%. Then comes Tajikistan, 52%. But you can see just right there that people in a number of the former Soviet republics, to a degree greater than Russians, felt that, yes, this was a whatever its problems, a unity that could in and of itself actually raise the standard of living and give them the respect and the dignity that people have been looking for for hundreds and hundreds of years under this brutal national and brutal feudal and class oppression that had been ruling over the territory of the czarist empire. But of course, Putin is part of the cohort of individuals. And whatever he said about, yes, it was a catastrophe, this, that, and the third, he was a part of the cohort of individuals in the Soviet Union who were willing to break this apart who are willing to go in a very different direction, who, you know, essentially destroyed the country for over a decade. Putin becomes the leader that really comes to power because he was seen as someone who would sort of arrest this, you know, complete downward slide 
that was happening in Russia at the time. And I think now what we're seeing in terms of his rationale is it's not a rationale based on what we were talking about in the first half of this show, which is relevant and important, which is the 20, 30 year campaign to isolate Russia via sanctions, via NATO on their border to prevent anyone but the United States from having total hegemony in Europe and around the world. But in fact, it's being rooted in what I view as a dangerous and a poisonous ideology about, you know, who's real and who's not, what borders are legitimate and what borders aren't legitimate. I mean, there's a lot of that conversation around the world. And I don't think there's anywhere around the world where that question is going to be solved through war. It's only going to be solved in the same way the Bolsheviks laid out, which is multinational unity on the na- on the country basis and multinational countries on the continental and regional basis and on a world basis under a government that puts people's needs first not profit first, which quite frankly is the whole reason we have these borders in the first place, the rise of the national state and the creation of capitalism. Eugene, I want I want to spend a little bit more time on this because we're dealing with political issues that are, I'd say, fundamental for the orientation of socialists, for anti-imperialists, for anti-war. Living here in the United States or in other Western imperialist countries, during the Cold War, There was the socialist camp. It was the Soviet Union, the countries of Eastern and Central Europe. Then after 1949, uh, the People's Republic of China, a few years before that, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, Vietnam, of course, and then Laos, Cambodia, Cuba. There was the attempted carrying out of socialist revolutions in Africa, especially as the Portuguese fascist regime broke apart in 1974. There was even the the attempt in Afghanistan, which was remarkable by socialists and communists to have a socialist economy. They too were aided by, supported by the socialist camp. So there was a global struggle called the Cold War, which has been sort of misnamed, I think, by calling it the Cold War. One, because there were a lot of hot parts of that Cold War. Korea, Vietnam, millions of people died, lots of other places too but also misnamed because it sounds like it's a struggle between nations, when in fact, the struggle that appears as a struggle between nations, in fact, masks the fact that it's a struggle between classes. The Soviet Union, Cuba, People's Republic of China, Korea, Vietnam, they constituted places where the workers and poor farmers, the peasants had taken power, where communists had taken political power, and we're trying to socialize the economy, reorganize the economy, begin socialist reconstruction, and in the face and in the overwhelming sort of objection by Western imperialism that imposed economic sanctions and wars and threats and covert operations. So socialists in the United States were badly hit by the witch hunt that took place because the communists, the principled socialists, stood with the socialist camp against imperialism. And it became a period of extreme political isolation because in this global struggle, the U.S. imperialist capitalist establishment wasn't going to allow socialists and communists to get strong in the United States because they were considered a fifth column in this global movement. But today, the socialist camp is gone. And yet there's elements of the global struggle that resemble what we called the Cold War or what we called the global class war. And by that, I mean the United States is now fixated on overcoming and destroying the government in China. They want to overthrow and topple or weaken the government in Russia. 
Those governments in turn have formed an alliance. That's China and Russia are together again. They formed this, the 1950s Soviet-China Friendship Treaty when Mao came and visited Stalin in Moscow. Then the Soviet-China Friendship turned into its opposite in the Sino-Soviet split, but now they're back together. And when you think about Cuba or Venezuela or Iran, the other countries that have been targeted, or Syria that have been targeted by imperialism, those countries look to the major countries that are not part of the imperialist world, China and Russia in particular. They see their unity, they see there's an alternative. And so in some ways, the global struggle starts to resemble the struggle that existed before, several decades ago, before the dissolution of the Soviet Union. But there is a difference. And I think it's so important because for us, for those of us in the United States who have to target our own government's imperial policies and imperialist strategy, we have to make the point to the working class and to young people in the United States that we should not identify with the imperialist aims of our government or the government that speaks in our name as it tries to wage war against these other countries, big and small. And we look, of course, to countries like Cuba or Venezuela and to some extent to China, which still have the rule of communist parties. And we think, good, they still have the socialist perspective in spite of everything they're trying to build socialism. But in the case of Russia, Putin is not trying to build socialism. What's really happened is that Russia, now under a capitalist government, has been targeted by U.S. imperialism for the reasons you said in the beginning, because the U.S., after the fall of the Soviet Union, decided that it would not allow any major power, either global major power or regional power, to survive and challenge U.S. hegemony. And so the U.S. is targeting Russia because Putin and the Russian leadership, current Russian leadership, help get Russia back on its feet as a major power and an independent power. And so the war against Russia by U.S. imperialism is a war against a country that challenges U.S. hegemony, but it's not challenging Putin because the Russian government offers a social alternative to capitalism. And the reason I think that's important is that too often people in the struggle against imperialism put the target of imperialism on a pedestal and decide that that's who they're going to follow. And I think our opposition to imperialist designs against Russia have to be based on a clear-eyed perspective where we recognize that the U.S. is not trying to take down Russia because it's communist. They're trying to take down Russia because Russia is Russia, a major power that once it exists and is back on its feet, by its intrinsic nature, challenges in a foundational way, the ability of the U.S. to dominate the entire world. Anyway, that's how I see it. And that's why I think this is important. No, I, I think that's exactly right. I think that we have to really have a sophisticated understanding of this concept and this emerging concept, which I think overall is good, of a multipolar world. And the reality is, is there are many different countries who, for very different reasons, are coming into friction with the United States in this concept of a multipolar world simply because they want to have their own whatever it may be, their own ideology, their own sort of regional policy that differs from what the United States wants to see, their own sort of international policy that differs from what the United States wants to see. As I said before, I mean, the United States wants to have a rules-based international order. That's what they call it. But everyone who has eyes and ears can see that it's really the U.S. 
makes the rules, and everyone else is forced to follow. And so ultimately, in that kind of context, you have the countries that are, to me, unequivocally good. And I'm happy to say that. The Cubas, the Venezuelas, the Vietnams, countries that have fought against unbelievable odds and are using socialist practices to build up their own people, China, of course, as well, to build up their own people, helping people around the world in all sorts of different ways, pointing to a world that's people-centered, not profit-centered, these sort of old ideas. And even though there are many things I think if you and I did it in the United States, we might do differently, probably a lot of things that we do differently. I think it's still important to recognize the spirit and the fire in those countries to try to live in a world that's so different from this world of, of exploitation and destruction that is capitalism. But there are other countries that have you know different sort of plans and policies, not internally, because, of course, we know the U.S. hates Cuba, not because Cuba is a military threat, but because it's the threat of a good example for having free health care, free education, housing for all people, and so on and so forth in the context of a country that's very poor. So if they can do that, imagine what we could do here. That's why they hate Cuba. There are other countries that they don't like because they say, well, hey, look. We want things to work in our region different than the way you want things to work in our region. Maybe we don't want Israel to control everything and have nuclear weapons and be able to destroy everyone and do apartheid against Palestinians. So we're going to work against that. You're a target of the United States. You know, we might actually like to work together and come together in the Horn of Africa and, you know, share our resources and our historical and contemporary cultural, social, and economic bonds in order to try to jointly lift up our people and not really to have the same policy of isolating countries like Eritrea or trying to divide countries like in Somalia. Well, that means, boom, you're a target right away. You can see, obviously, with Russia that they have many different ways they want to see the world operate and run. They say openly that they think that the U.S. shouldn't make all the rules, that it shouldn't just be the United States that determines you know, who rises and who falls as world leaders. They're open to supporting countries like Iran, like Cuba, like Venezuela, like China, like Vietnam, like India. Uh, you know, Russia is really looking to have good relations economically with just about every country, and they want to be able to have those relations freely even if it cuts against U.S. allies in a region. So if they want to work with someone who's not the best friend of Washington, D.C., they don't care what Washington, D.C. thinks, but they're not following the rules. So you end up with this situation where you have all sorts of countries from, you know, and I'll just add one more block of people. You also have countries that love the United States in the West, but they're under their own pressure because of the fact that their own people are sick and tired of the imperialist neocolonial realities of their nations. And this is what we're seeing all around Africa right now with people dumping the French, adding Russia. And so you have leaders who are like, look, we can't keep going the same way because these people will take us out because they're not going to live like this in this sort of poverty and deprivation for another 100 years. So you have multiple different levels of people from socialist governments and peoples that are moving to try to change the re fundamental reality of how people relate to the society, how people relate to each other, how they relate to the earth, how they build sustainably, how they exchange their goods to have a different form of system, a people-centered, not a profit-centered system. You have people who are just totally self-interested, who don't want to be wiped away by movements in their own country that want a people-centered, not a profit-centered system. So they feel like they got to do a little something more for development than what the IMF, European Union, United States, neoliberal, neocolonial economies offer. Then you have people who say, hey, we want to do something very different that cuts against the grain of U.S. allies in our region, which means that they they ultimately end up being targeted and not just in the region and in the world. So when you look at those three major buckets, you have a lot of different kinds of governments, good, bad, and indifferent, as the old saying goes, that are all still in a state of contradiction with U.S. imperialism and thus are all getting the same stick. Everyone's offered the same carrot. Everyone gets the same stick. You follow the rules. The elites of your country get rich while the masses of people suffer. But for the elites, hey, at least you're rich. 
You break the rules, we're going to do whatever we can to isolate you, sanction you, destroy you, even up to the point of regime change and war. Which means that if you want to oppose the politics of U.S. imperialism, you are put in a position whereby you are ultimately saying the U.S. should not be doing this against a range of countries. Again, good, bad, or indifferent. And I don't think people need to feel like, oh, we're somehow supporters of this or that government by opposing the U.S. moves in their country. All you're supporters of is the right of peoples of those countries to determine how they live in and of themselves. Or at the very least to say that the United States should not be the one that determines who and how they live, who and how different countries relate to each other, what the ultimate balance of forces and relationship of forces and balance of power is on a global scale, that the U.S. shouldn't be able to put its thumb on the scale of every single geopolitical issue and determine the outcome, determine who gets poor, who get rich, who's friends with who, who destroys who, who goes to war with who. You're saying, no, enough of that. Rather than spend nearly $800 billion every single year, rather than have a trillion dollars worth of nuclear weapons, rather than have huge millions of refugee flows of people being pushed out by all of these wars, rather have increases in hunger and humanitarian crises like what we're seeing in Yemen, that we should pull back that we should look for peace, that we should look for cooperation, that we shouldn't tell everyone around the world what to do. I mean, those are the basic principles. And of course, if people want to like Russia and Putin, that's also their right. But it doesn't mean that it's a precondition for anyone who is opposing the moves of U.S. imperialism. I think we have to have a sophisticated analysis that realizes that, you know, from a domestic, cultural, social perspective, people with very retrograde politics can still be pushing forward towards a world where U.S. imperialism doesn't determine everything, which is the precondition for better social, cultural, and economic policies on a socialist basis, because we saw what happened in the old Cold War. Anyone who tried to live a better life, destroyed immediately. If you tried to have a better life for your country, they were going to do everything possible up to supporting apartheid South Africa to try to destroy you. So the precondition for people's being able to liberate themselves and to live in some form of dignity and respect and lift off the shackles of humiliation and neocolonialism it's U.S. imperialism has to take a step back, has to be moved off the board. And that's a complex process that involves a lot of different forces, some of which perhaps down the line, friends of ours might be in conflict with. But at the end of the day, we have to recognize the key and preeminent role of U.S. imperialism from preventing progress on a worldwide stage for the average everyday person. And we have to recognize and foreground the ending of those U.S. imperialist policies if we want to start to move this forward. We want to deal with climate change, global poverty, global immigration. How can we do that without cooperation as opposed to confrontation? And how can you have cooperation if you're constantly going around the world calling everyone an enemy who doesn't agree with you for totally hypocritical, spurious reasons and waging wars against them? Eugene, we're going to keep following this story because obviously it's front and center. The stakes are high. They actually can't be higher. Of course, World War I, World War II, a few years before they took place, people were worried about coming war, but nobody knew exactly what the timeline would be, the magnitude of the violence. But more than 100 million people died in those two wars. Europe was gone, basically destroyed. Japan was destroyed. Revolutions started all over Asia and throughout the colonized world. The world changed for good and bad. But obviously, the issue of war in the epic or era of imperialism, as, as Vladimir Lenin pointed out so well in his pamphlet, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, that has to be front and center for all of the people who believe in justice and who want peace. And you can't be a social justice activist in the United States and fight for better wages or free health care or any of the other social programs that 
people in this country need neglect having a worldview, a refined and, as you put it, sophisticated worldview that roots your worldview in the idea that workers of the world, people of the world can indeed unite and find a different path absent from imperialism, in opposition to imperialism, and in fact, create a new and better world. Eugene Perrier, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.